Please have a seat. And let's once again hear God's word, this time in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Up until just before Christmas, we're going to look together at the first 15 chapters of this wonderful book that tells us so much about our great God. So let's hear God's word in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Amen. So we're going to begin this series, and I hope as we, well, hopefully we'll eventually get to chapter 40, we will recognize that in the book of Exodus, we discover the God who makes himself known, and we will see him making himself known in very different ways. Now, the book of Exodus tells us about the mission of God, which by extension becomes the mission of the church. And so we discover in the Bible and in our world that God is on a mission. God has a purpose. And his purpose, ultimately, is to make his glory and his goodness known. And so that he would save all those he has called to himself. And so the Bible is full of revelation. God revealing himself as creator, as ruler over all things, as redeemer, ultimately, Uh, revealing himself in his son, the Lord Jesus. 
And so God's mission in the book of Exodus, as we'll see, is very much to make himself known. To make himself known to his people. That they would come to recognize him as their redeemer and their savior. And that they would come to know their covenant Lord. That they would recognize that he is the holy God that they might worship and obey him. But also we need to understand God isn't just making himself known to his own people and for the good of his own people. He's also doing that for the nations around them, that they too might know the one true God, perhaps especially in contrast to Pharaoh and the false gods that we see in the book of Exodus. So Exodus is a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book to help us as a church to know who God is, and it's a helpful reminder to us of what is God's purpose in the world, therefore what is God's purpose for our lives and for our church, that we too might be part of this mission. And Exodus 1 is a a really helpful uh, chapter to introduce us uh, to so many things. A couple of things that at very least it reminds us once again uh, to ask the question that with all these terrible things that we see happening in Genesis 1 and with all the terrible things that we see happening in our own world today, what is people's greatest need? We thought about that already this morning. But isn't it interesting, if we look at Exodus chapter 1, we can very much map so many of these negative qualities into our world today. There are still uh, paranoid tyrants and dictators who want to rule with oppression and fear. There is still the problem of, of racism and the fear of the other. Uh, there is still the reality of people trafficking and human slavery. Uh, There is still oppression, there is still the desire among some for ethnic cleansing. But here's the question for us to think about. If we had the capacity to fix all that, if we could bring sort of peace and an end to hostility, peace between people groups, but those people didn't have Jesus, would that be enough? And I think when as Christians we ask the question that way, it helps us to to get to the, the root of all the problems people's greatest need ultimately is to know their God, to know their God as Savior in the Lord Jesus. But this chapter also addresses a, a question that, that Christians will likely face at some point, perhaps even today. If God is for me in blessing... Why is it that I suffer and why is it that I know bitterness? And again, Exodus 1 is going to begin to point us towards hope in our covenant-keeping God. So we've got two things to think about from this chapter. Very simply, we're going to think about blessing and we're going to think about bitterness. Uh, First of all, in the first seven verses, uh, let's think about blessing. But before we get into our text... Um, just to help our boys and girls, uh, do you know, boys and girls, who wrote the book of Exodus? I won't ask you to shout it out, uh, but it's helpful to know that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and Moses also wrote the book of Genesis. So when we read Exodus, we want to read it as a continuing story. God is still at work. And there are at least two ways that we can see this. Uh, first of all, key verse, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me in Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, 
and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Moses has already written using that language in the book of Genesis. So we turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Um, God, having made mankind in his own image, we're told God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. People created as image bearers, created then to fill the earth, to rule for God, to spread his glory and his knowledge. And so the point then of Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 is that despite their slavery... God is still working out that mission since creation. His desire and his plan has not changed. He still wants to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. And he's going to do that through uh, the captive people of Israel who will, in the fullness of God's time, be set free. God is still working to bless, even when they're in captivity. That it starts with a genealogy is significant too. So it begins with that, that list of the family of Jacob. That we discover this family of 70. And that's significant because again, when we go back to the book of Genesis, we remember that it's to this family that God has made covenant promises to. So we might be familiar with Genesis chapter 12, the, the promise that God made to Abraham. So let me read verse 2 and see that we can see the connection. God promises, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So when we get to this genealogy we discover, well here's a family of 70 we understand that God is continuing to work out that promise, that they are becoming that family who know God's blessing, that great nation, who ultimately are going to bless others by showing and telling them of the Lord. Again, I think it's helpful for us uh, to think about who were the first hearers of the book of Exodus. It's not us sitting here in in the 21st century. Rather, it was Israel in the wilderness. And one of the things that we discover about Israel is that they most likely had lost a sense of their history. So here is this nation now of one million people. They're discovering, wow, we came from this one family and we came from God's faithfulness. So God is blessing them in Egypt. Now, before we uh, make an application for ourselves, there's one more uh, thing on the question of blessing that I think is important for us to recognize. Again, boys and girls, let me give you a challenge here. Uh, Can you find uh, the name of God in here? Can you find the name of the Lord in here? And while you're scanning... And it's going to be a fruitless exercise. I'll give you a wee clue. Um, In the book of Genesis, Moses has used God's personal covenant name, the Lord, 175 times. But here, it's absent. When Moses is telling us about the midwives, we're told about God being kind to them and God acting. 
But it seems as though in the passage of time between uh, Genesis and Exodus, while these slaves are being kept and are being cared for by God, as God is keeping his promises, they seem to know very little of him. And what becomes really clear is that their great need is for God to reveal his name. For God to remind them of who he is, who he is for them, what he is like, the promises that he has made, all that he will do for them. And that comes in chapter 3. So come back uh, in a couple of weeks and we'll get there. Uh, But just for us just now, as we think about this blessing that we see in these first seven verses, and to just pull back a little, uh, just to remind ourselves of what we said at the beginning, that God is concerned for his own glory. That is his great mission. That's his desire for our lives personally. That's his desire for our church. That's his desire within the world. Ross Blackburn, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. The mission of God is God's commitment to be known for who he is among his people and through them among all peoples. So perhaps one of the things that we can usefully do is saying, what does that mean for, for, for you, for me, uh, for our church? That God is committed to tell people who he truly is, and one way he's going to do that is through his people, the church. Uh, one of the things I did over my uh, sabbatical was to take a look at our mission statement and to rework it and, and to, to simplify it. Um, so now if you go onto our website, you look at our mission statement, it simply says, we exist to love God, to love people, and to make disciples, and to bring together the the great commandment and and the great commission. Because any church, in any generation, in any setting, we all have the same mission. We are called to worship the one true and living God, as he's found in his word. We are called to know God as he reveals himself in his word. We are called to bear witness to him in our lives. And we're called to be engaged in global mission because God deserves glory. Because knowing him is our greatest good, is everybody's greatest good. So God is concerned for his own glory. And we're going to see that come time and time again in the book of Exodus. Well, that's the blessing that we see. Well, we'll see some from the midwives. But let's think about bitterness uh, from verse 8 to verse 22 and it dominates uh, much of this first chapter but before again we get into the text uh, so I'm from Sky for those of you who haven't met me and because I'm from Sky I get lots of tourist information questions I love those questions because I love uh, to share uh, Sky with other people uh, my favorite uh, question over the summer holidays I still haven't got to the the, the bottom of where the person was coming from and asking it. Um, so it started fairly naturally. We want to hire a van uh, to travel there with a family and to tour around. And then the question came, are the roads normally surfaced? I've never had that question. And it made me wonder in people's imagination from other parts of the world, what the roads in sky must be like. Is it like the moon? Is it dirt track? I have no idea. But you know, it's a great question because... This is somebody who obviously wanted to have the right expectations for the journey that he was about to make. You've got to make sure that you're prepared. Right expectations for a journey make all the difference. Well, if Christian life is a a journey, 
What kind of journey is it? What's it like? Is it the journey of the, the luxury cruise liner where everything is smooth and plain sailing and we're well served and it's all wonderful and nice? Or is the Christian life more like the fishing boat out in the stormy seas but where Jesus is in the boat? And so one of the things that Exodus 1 does for us and the whole Bible does for us is it provides us with reality. So for Israel and for us, we will discover time and again that blessing and bitterness often come together. That's why we read that section of Paul. Paul talking about his own testimony. You're sorrowful and yet rejoicing. We could go to the letter of James addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And what's the first thing he does is he prepares them to face many trials and to face them joyfully with faith in the Lord Jesus. Think about the message of Jesus himself who spoke to his followers about their need to carry their crosses who very honestly said to them, if they hate me, they will absolutely hate you too. And so Exodus 1 reminds us of that. Now before we ask what was the particular bitterness that Israel was experiencing, we need to ask ourselves why. And I hope we'll understand why it's important to see why things got difficult for them. So look with me at verses 8 and 9 where we are told then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. So the bitterness comes because a new king comes, a new pharaoh comes, and this pharaoh has no knowledge or no concern for Joseph, who had rescued Egypt and many other nations at the same time. And by extension, this new Pharaoh has no knowledge or concern for Joseph's God. And what we see is that God has blessed the people by making them numerous, and Pharaoh chooses to oppose Israel because... God has made them numerous. So he is deliberately reacting against God's blessing of his people. And there is a lesson for us there. That God's purposes, God's blessing, God's people will be opposed. Will at times be regarded as a threat to those who are not living in line with God's will. Whether that's our word, whether that's our lifestyle that seems so different, often that provokes a response. Sometimes that draws people towards Jesus, but sometimes it leads to hostility. The best example of that, of course, is Jesus himself. God's greatest gift to give his one and only son, Jesus who came to save, to seek and to save the lost. But he is despised and he's rejected. And he's killed. And we see this this kind of extreme response to the people of Jesus still, where there is persecution in different parts of the world. 
in Nigeria, where there are gangs of terrorists who are attacking churches and killing Christians. In places like the Yemen, where Christians are routinely thrown into prison and treated harshly. And I think one thing, whenever we read of these kind of circumstances in the Bible, it should remind us, Psalm 124 should remind us to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world to know endurance, to know their God in the midst of that suffering, to be able to live and to die if necessary for his glory. But that's why they're experiencing bitterness, because Pharaoh simply is opposing the will of God for his people. Now, how do the people experience bitterness? What does it look like under this wicked Pharaoh? Well, first of all, there's the slave labor, the brick making. Verse 11 onwards, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. So, so men are being taken from their families, being taken from their farms, uh, first of all, being taken to build huge cities. Uh, they're given the very lowest of social standing in the hope that that will prevent any social uprising. They're being worked ruthlessly. That's a point emphasized in verses 13 and 14. Maybe you heard it uh, as uh, we read it together. But let me read them again. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Moses is at pains to point out that Israel is being forced to serve a bad master. And their great need is not just, and it's important for us to recognize, their great need isn't just to have freedom from this master, but that they would have freedom to serve God, the good and gracious master, their covenant Lord. So that's part of the bitterness that they experience, the slave labor. But then there is the state-sponsored murder. Pharaoh issues two utterly shocking requests, doesn't he? In verse 16, he turns to these Hebrew midwives who have trained and learned how to bring life into the world and to protect life. And they are asked, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, if you see that the baby is a boy kill him. And then in verse 22, that same request is made to Pharaoh's own citizens. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Time and again, we're going to see that the Pharaoh in Exodus represents the anti-God figure. He stands against God. He is opposed to God. And this anti-God figure is also profoundly anti-life. He is against life and will take any um, measures necessary to protect himself. But it's wonderful that in the darkness of this situation, against the dark backdrop of this command, that the light of faith still shines there from these two Ladies, most likely two senior midwives. It seems uh, like in verse 19, there must be a team uh, of uh, midwives uh, working 
uh, in the area where Israel was settled. And they're a wonderful example to us uh, of courageous faith and also of surprising saviours. Just as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, Moses preserved by a courageous mother. And they receive blessing from God, don't they? Verse 21, we're told, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God shows grace uh, to them in response to uh, their faithfulness, their loyalty to God at great risk. And it's wonderful that their stories are recorded, that their names are given, that they are honoured for their faith. But what we see is, is, as um, this chapter closes, is that God has been blessing his people, though it seems like perhaps they are not very much aware of him. But those people are also knowing bitterness from Pharaoh. And so we find ourselves as readers waiting for God to make himself known. And he is and he will. A couple of things from this section. Uh, First, uh, to acknowledge um, that God's people experience triumphant brokenness. There was a phrase I picked up in uh, a Dane Ortland book recently. Triumphant brokenness. There is triumph for uh, the believer. We know that God's plans are unbreakable. We know that God's promises are sure. We know that our salvation in Christ, victory in him, is guaranteed. So there is triumph, and there is triumph to come. But yet we also know in our experience brokenness. That we live in a fallen world. And we are weak and broken sinners. And we also know the reality of threats and opposition. Like everybody else, we know the reality of suffering. Triumphant brokenness is a defining mark of the Christian. And so perhaps we find uh, ourselves in that situation where life often feels dark and we find ourselves asking the question, why? We find laments uh, in the Old Testament where believers are asking themselves, why? Why are things like this? We have been loyal to our God. We are in the covenant. We expect life to look like this, but it's turned out quite different. Why? Perhaps we have that. Somebody once said, if we had God's perspective, all of our questions would stop. But we don't have that perspective, and so often those questions remain. But again, as we, as we look back and we remember this is an ongoing story, uh, there's certain things that we know to be true. So we've seen already for Israel, they are knowing and experiencing God's blessing, even while they are slaves. Uh, but more than that, we can go back one more time to the book of Genesis and again to words Uh, that God delivered to Abraham as he entered into covenant with him. Genesis 15 and verse 13. We discover something really important. Then the Lord said to Abraham, 
know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. What is happening is not outside of God's control, but rather stands as part of God's plan. Of course, there is mystery, and we ask why, but we see this is part of God's plan. And we can go further, verse 14 of Genesis 15, to words of promise and hope. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. There is that promise given to Abraham that this would turn out well. And this is the reality that we're going to see as we get to uh, Genesis, uh, rather Exodus 15, as we see uh, the people uh, leaving Egypt with all the treasures of Egypt, uh, God going with them. And our need as Christians is to hold on to the reality that it's presented there in Genesis 15 that's worked out in the book of Exodus, that God is always at work. He always knows what he's doing. He works in his time, in his way, and for his good purposes. It's like those wonderful, uh, precious words from Romans 8 And verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So God's people will experience triumphant brokenness. But the other lesson to learn is that everybody needs to choose the right master. So one of the things we're going to see again and again in the book of Exodus is that there is Pharaoh and there is God. And Pharaoh wants to oppose God, and Pharaoh would gladly rule as God. But he's a bad master, as we saw. Jesus said it to those listening, you cannot serve two masters. And there he was expressing it, you cannot serve God and money. In Exodus 1, we meet Pharaoh, who is making, forcing the people to serve him, to show loyalty to him. He's incredibly demanding and cruel, and destructive. But it's also quite instructive as a picture of idolatry. When we think about idolatry, not as a statue, but of anything that we give our hearts to. Anywhere where our hope is placed that is not God. Those things that drive us. There is a battle for all of us in our hearts. Who will be our master? Where do we find the battle lines drawn in our own hearts? Perhaps, as Jesus said, it'll be money, perhaps power or success, perhaps education or sport, popularity. There are many things that will demand our time, will claim our energy and devotion, and they will make promises. I can give you life. I can make you happy. I can complete you. But anything less than God is too small to keep those promises and will not deliver in the end and do not offer true life. And so we are invited to consider, the book of Exodus calls us to consider who really is our master. Come to Jesus, is the message of the Bible, the true and good master. While Pharaoh 
worked his, the people of Israel ruthlessly, Jesus came and he said, come to me and I will give you rest. And we meet Pharaoh, this terrible king who would kill the firstborn, who would kill all the boys. And we find Jesus coming to be the true Passover lamb, dying in the place of his people so that we might truly live. We find Pharaoh, the bad master, fighting against the blessing of God, fighting against the mission of God. How different that is from Jesus, who comes on the mission of God to give us the blessing of knowing and enjoying God for now and for all eternity. So may we all choose to live under Jesus as Lord, Jesus the good master, to recognize that we were made to serve him, to know and to enjoy him. Let's pray together briefly. Father God, we thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for the many ways in which we can discover who you are, what you are like, and what your purposes and plans are in this world. Lord, we thank you for the way that behind the scenes you are working to keep your promises to be faithful to your people, to bless them. Lord, we thank you that that reality holds true. We confess that sometimes we can't see you working. Sometimes we don't understand why things happen the way we do. Give us the ability to trust you. Give us the ability to place our hope in you. Keep us from despair. Keep us from bitterness, we pray. Lord, we thank you that unlike Pharaoh, Jesus is such a a gracious and a good master. May you cause all of us to be drawn to him, to fix our eyes on him. That as we go into this new week with all kinds of opportunities and situations and circumstances, some of which we can anticipate, many of which might take us by surprise, Lord, help us to go knowing that you are with us and that you are for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's uh, close uh, singing uh, the simple but wonderful uh, little hymn, Jesus, Strong and Kind. So let's stand together and sing.